sense of, oh, that's really inspirational. And, and it comes up in weddings. I've, I've preached, I think, two or three weddings now that have used that passage as the wedding text. And, and it, it is idealistic, and it is that newlywed type of love feeling where everything's going to be happy now. And all of you who are married are shaking your heads, saying that lasts about six months at most, and maybe just till the next morning when you smell their bad breath. Right? there is a sense of where this love is so idealistic, so idyllic, we don't know how to actually imagine it being lived out. In fact, if we reflect on it very long at all, we start feeling a sense of guilt and shame because we're aware that in our relationships with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family, we don't come close to that. We keep records of wrongs, don't we? I mean, we, we know who has offended us and, and when it happens. Sometimes we even know the precise date on when it happened. And it could be 25 years later or 30 years later, and we still hold on to that moment when someone else wronged us. Agape love keeps no record. What? People of Israel went through this too. They, they had, had attempted to follow God and then they finally gave up because they figured following God was too difficult. His demands were too much on them and they couldn't do it. And they get brought off into exile and after years of being in exile and starting to confess their sins and saying, Lord, how much longer are you going to punish us? They're, they're crying out, we can't live up to your love. We can't do it in ourselves. We can't do it. When I was a kid, I went to a, a conference, a number of conferences, youth conferences and retreats, and, and one of them, they, they put this up on the screen. Colin, if you would, please. They put this up on the screen, and they said, every blank spot, we want you to put your name in. Okay? So I'm going to invite you to do that, just quietly for a moment. Just put your name in every blank spot there. Read through it. I was doing okay on the Chris's patient. Chris is kind most days. Chris does not envy most people. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? You, you start saying these things, and, and they actually had us say it out loud. So we have this whole gymnasium full of high school youth saying this out loud and saying our names, and as we go through it, it gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And by the time you're done saying... Chris always protects, always trusts, always hopes. We're, no, oh, man. We fall short. I came across a, a blog this week, a, a lady named Christina Cleveland, who I, I pay attention to. She teaches uh, at Duke University, uh, very involved in racial reconciliation conversations in the States. And and I, I, I tend to like a lot of the stuff she was reading, or she, she writes, and 
uh, she was reflecting on this passage. If you could, Colin, the next slide. I've always secretly hated 1 Corinthians 13. As a perfectionist, I would read about all of the things that love is, be painfully reminded that my behaviors don't perfectly adhere to the love checklist, swiftly conclude that I am nothing more than a clanging symbol, and shrink away in shame. I think most of us could relate to that. I mean, maybe we don't put it in terms of, of shrinking away in shame, but, but that experience of this is such a high demand, how are we ever going to live up to it? And maybe the place we go with it is, well, I'm close. <laughs> I do most of it okay. The challenge of this passage is it's using, it's using terms that, that expose our sin that expose our brokenness, expose our inability to actually care for another person selflessly. I'll love them as long as... But I can't talk to them anymore because they did... We don't know how to engage in such a way that the love we have towards others fills this passage. I was reading an email that came in today, uh, this morning, on an email group with Al Walters. Some of you know Al. Uh, Al's preached here a few times before. And Al uh, spent several years writing this commentary on the book of Zechariah. So he has immersed himself in an Old Testament prophet most of us never read. Uh, and he has paid attention to all the scholarship around that. And he sent out this email, and I'm going to read just part of it. It's, it's to a wide public group. Um, today, February 14, is the anniversary of the day when the prophet Zechariah received the eight night visions, which are recorded in Zechariah 1 through 6. God assures his people that the 70 years of exile are about to be over, and that he will return in mercy to dwell among them again. He will take up residence again in the new temple in the promised land, signaling the end of the terrible years of punishment when he had, which he had inflicted on his people, and fulfilling his promise of the return from exile which Jeremiah had given seven decades earlier. And, and my first thought was, how do you know, Al, that today is that day? Al anticipates that question. The night visions are dated quite precisely to the 24th day of the 11th month of the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. Through the cooperation of historians and astronomers, it has been possible for modern scholarship to convert that day quite precisely to its equivalent in our modern calendar. That day comes out to February 14 to 15, uh, 519 B.C., in other words, Zechariah's night visions, his visions of God's promising to redeem his people, took place on this day, February 14, uh, 2,534 years ago. God speaks to his people when they feel inadequate, 
when they are experiencing that separation from God and their inability to do anything about their situation. God's people were in a a foreign land and they had no capacity of their own to earn God's favor and no capacity left in them to do anything to their neighbors that would, would show that they love God. They were at the end of every resource they had and they were caught in a foreign land and God speaks to them. I love you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you new. I am going to do something that you, you simply have to receive. Jeremiah's words were, I'm going to put a a new covenant in place. I'm going to write it on their hearts giving them, as Ezekiel would say, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. God is going to do a new thing so that his people can receive his love and in receiving his love can begin to participate in that love. I'm going to go to the next slide if we could, Colin. 1 John 4, and and I had uh, Owen read uh, verse 17, but I want to give a little more context to it. Verses 15 through 17. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world... We are like Jesus. Two things. One, the passage says love, and it says it multiple times, and all through this again, John is using the agape word. Agape. God is agape love. God is the one who gives this love. God is the one who wraps us into himself by wrapping us into his love. And the second, in this world, we are like Jesus. Not we will be like Jesus. Not we should be like Jesus. We are like Jesus. You see, God's love, given to us, extended to us, makes us like Jesus, wraps us up into the love of Jesus in such a way that we are caught up in it, in our inadequacies, our failure to love, our sin is washed away, is made whole, in Christ Jesus. That conference I had talked about that I had gone to as a youth, after they induced that sense of guilt among us, uh, they also put up this next slide. Um, I'm going to skip that one if we could, Colin, this next one. They put Jesus' name in the place. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. 
The good news of the gospel is not a self-help tool that we can somehow, if we pay attention to the right verses and the right thing, figure out life and, and become this great embodiment of love. The good news of the gospel is even though we fail all the time, God's love does not fail. And his love in Jesus Christ wraps us into the fullness of God's love. So that everything we are and everything that we have gets caught up in him. Gets brought into him. And, and so as we head into this Lenten season together, it's not a, a wishy-washy love. It's not a love that's dependent on the other person responding that we're called into. We're called into and wrapped into the love of God himself who says, I've got you. I'm holding on to you. I'm making you whole and new and holy. I'm making your love complete even when you know it is so far from being complete. I'm stepping in. Our Lenten season, if anything, becomes a season of, of living with open hands where we can receive God's love and say, Lord, I desperately need your love because my love is so short and I feel how inadequate it is. I need you. I need you to fill me. I need you to pour your love into me because only then will I actually be able to love my parents or my siblings or my spouse or my neighbor or my enemy. Please, Lord, help me to live into that love. If we could go to the next slide. What do we do with this? Besides the open hands, where do we go with this love of God that comes through in Jesus Christ, this fullness of love? I was doing some reading and have done a couple times on, on John Calvin and Martin Bucer. They were friends. Uh, John Calvin actually went and lived in Martin Bucer's house for a while when John Calvin was being chased out of uh, the town he had been lived in. Uh, people were threatening to kill him. He took off, went and crashed at Martin Bucer's plate. Uh, they spent time together getting to know each other and talking, but their theologies developed in slightly different ways. And, and Calvin talked about we are, we are compelled and, and in some sense propelled to serve others because God's image is in them. God is present in them and, and it attracts us and draws us into a posture of service towards others. God's love animating us, beckoning us, calling us to serve others, even if they are completely ignorant of God's love and who God is in their life. We're being called into this act of service as a response to God's love. Martin Bucer went the other direction, and he said, it is as we start to serve others... As we step out of our comfort zones, as we... He didn't use comfort zones in the, in the 1500s, but, but it's that idea. As we step out of those places that are familiar and safe and we begin to serve other people, God's love, God's image starts to live within us. And when you put these two together, we get that picture of the fullness of God's agape love. 
Serving others because we say God's image is in you. Uh, serving others because we, we desire that God's image would live fully within us. Recognizing that God's image is made fully known in Jesus Christ. God's agape love. Go to the next slide, please. And so we come back to this core value. And it gives us three things to work on. Three things that, that we can practice entering into God's love together with. The church is a sign and foretaste of the kingdom of God for all people to see. Following Christ's example, example we demonstrate hospitality by welcoming and folding those who seek a place to belong. Did you hear that when Carrie was talking earlier? By extending ourselves as neighbors within our communities. It's looking not who is my neighbor type question, who do I have to love and who can I get away with ignoring. It's saying how can I be that neighbor how can I love someone else? Who around me needs a neighbor to love them and care for them as Christ has loved us? And pursuing justice in our city, looking for those who have no one else speaking for them or walking alongside them, coming alongside them and saying, I'm going to walk with you, not because you've deserved it, not because you've earned it, not because somehow you are more worthy than others. I'm going to walk with you and pursue justice in the city because God's love in Jesus Christ has caught me up into a new way of living that propels me outward. This is the vision we're called to. An agape love that is shaped by servant hospitality. Receiving that generous love of God in Jesus Christ who died for our sins to make us whole and holy and in receiving it beginning to live in such a way that we extend ourselves towards others with that same love knowing we aren't going to do it perfectly knowing we're not going to achieve any great monumental world transformation through it but simply because we are thankful to have already received the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your incredible love. You have been demonstrating it again and again and again to your people. We tend to be a people who, who take on shame and guilt, and even though we know you forgive us, we, we wrap ourselves back in that same shame and guilt. We need you to forgive us, to release us from our, our cycle of guilt and shame so that we can receive your love fully. We pray that you would wash over us, cleansing us, freeing us in Jesus Christ. And as you do, that you would well up within us this gratitude and this desire to love others as you have loved us. Even if we don't do it perfectly, Lord, and we know we won't, May you bless our attempts to love others. Not that they would see how good we are, but they might see how great your love is and be drawn to you. Teach us to live with open hands before you 
that we might receive your love and give it just as freely and generously. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.